SOAS Radio. You're listening to Professor Playlist on SOAS Radio. For this series, we've lured professors out of the classroom and into the studio to share five of their favorite tracks. Fred chats with Professor Paul Basu. He's currently leading a project entitled Museum Affordances, Reentanglements. In this episode, he shares five recordings from the archives of Northcutt Thomas. So I'm joined in the studio today by Paul Basu. Paul, how are you doing? Fine, thanks. Yes. You're the lead on the Reentanglements project? That's right, yes, yeah. It's an HRC-funded project called Museum Affordances, actually, but Reentanglements is the kind, of the, the kind of core case study, if you like. And you recently won an award for the best research film. Tell me a little bit about that. Absolutely, yes, yeah. So in this, this project, basically, we're looking at a really remarkable anthropological archive assembled by a colonial anthropologist called Northcote Thomas, who was working in what's now Nigeria and Sierra Leone in the early years of the 20th century. He took photographs, he made sound recordings, collected artifacts, botanical specimens and so on. And the project as a whole is kind of looking at this body of material and particularly what it means today, what it can do today, really particularly in this kind of, you know, it was very much a colonial collection and a colonial project. So in this age of decolonization, we're trying to really think about it. So as part of that, we wanted to investigate really what the photographs meant. He took something like seven and a half thousand photographs. And so this film is all about a group of people who have more or less kind of close engagement with the areas in which he worked, really interrogating those pictures. It's a very simple film. It involves basically the archive picture and the picture of the, the respondent, as it were, in, engaged in a dialogue. So it's very simple. So they are, they're adding their voices to these mute photographs. So it's called Faces, Voices. And yeah, we were lucky. We got the award at this Research in Film Award event, which the AHRC fund. And yeah, we got the top award there, the best research film, which we're chuffed about, of course. Congratulations. And what are some of the faces, some of the voices people made? What is it like dealing with an anthropological archive as opposed to conducting fieldwork, for example? I mean, a lot of my research as an anthropologist has to do with the past. You know, I work on cultural heritage. I'm interested in the way in different societies conceptualize the past, really, and how, how that figures in the present. And a lot of my work contrasts in a way or bridges putting scare quotes around everything, indigenous kind of perspectives about the past and understandings of the past with colonial forms, for instance. I take a lot of colonial archives, photographs, sound material, documents, maps, back to communities in Sierra Leone and Nigeria. And really, we explore you know, the coming together of those kind of different understandings of history. So this particular archive is really problematic. It speaks to the discipline of anthropology, its entanglement in the colonial project. And a particular type of a, an anthropological genre of photography, the physical type portrait, was something that was very much part of the anthropological project at that time. So Thomas took about half of those 7,500 photographs, a physical type portrait, where we have a kind of a frontal view of a face and a profile view. And a lot of people associate these with kind of crime, you know, photography and things like that. And um, in some senses, they epitomize this kind of violence of colonial science. They seem to reduce people to types to be compared, their physical characteristics to be compared. What the film does, though, is it looks at those really problematic photographs and really sees if we can kind of understand them beyond that kind of colonial critique. 
And that's what emerges in this film. So we see these photographs, these particular genre of physical type photographs, and then people are actually reading them in very different ways, getting beyond that binary of the colonized and the colonizer kind of thing, and trying to, and really getting at what the person, what's in the person's eyes, what's it speaking to. And some find that they reinforce kind of that notion of colonial oppression and victimhood but others see them in terms of much more positive issue, like, I mean, resilience, I mean, happiness. What do we do with a kind of colonial archive where people are smiling or laughing? You know, it challenges that notion that everyone was oppressed. This was all bad, bad, bad. Of course it was. That's the broader context. But the question is, is can we read these pictures beyond that, really? So that's what the film's trying to get at. Is there anything out of this that you would recommend for students, for example, that are going out and doing their own field work that can help them? Maybe don't have the resources to make a film about it, but in terms of engaging with colonial archive material, is there anything you advice you give to your students in terms of getting past those binaries? Yeah, I suppose for my kind of work, I bridge. I'm a very multidisciplinary person. My background was actually in filmmaking before I came to anthropology, but I've also been very much, a lot of my work is historical in nature or even archaeological. So I really kind of span those. And, you know, I personally believe in that, not being kind of shackled to a particular disciplinary kind of perspective. I think their archives and collections are an amazing resource. And we kind of, I think, take them for granted. We have access to them quite easily. But, you know, actually the communities whose histories and heritage these things document, particularly anthropological kind of archives and so on, have no access to them, have no idea they exist, that there's pictures of their grandparents and great-grandparents sitting in an archive across the world somewhere. So for me, bringing people back, back into contact with their ancestors, their ancestors' voices, faces, and so on through these archives is amazing. So, yeah, I mean, I find that an amazing tool to kind of use in field work. I do a lot of field work, more traditional-looking field work in my anthropological research, but a lot of it is also reaching back in time to those colonial kind of archives. And it's interesting because the very same kind of events, as it were, documented in one form in those colonial archives are remembered in a very different way, perhaps performatively or in the way in which certain areas of the landscape are kind of thought about or engaged with, you know, in very different ways locally. So we've spoken a bit about photographs. We're confined to sound here. What are we going to hear as your first pick? So what I've done is I've chosen some tracks here that relate to this re-entanglements project. As I say, this works with a particular archive, this archive assembled by this colonial anthropologist, Northcote Thomas, in the course of a series of surveys he made in Nigeria and Sierra Leone between 1909 and 1915. And that was actually that first decade or two of the 20th century was an exciting time in anthropology because it was very experimental. People were using different technologies, cameras, and indeed phonograph recorders, sound recorders. There was no microphone, so this is a kind of a horn, as it were. Northcote Thomas's recordings were recorded onto wax cylinders, very primitive technologies. But what's amazing is these are some of the earliest recordings of songs, of musical instruments, of stories and so on, recorded in West Africa. So the first track is a women's society song recorded in a place called Tormabun in the south of Sierra Leone, a Mende-speaking area. And this song is a Sande Society song. That's a, it's a women's society song. And as I say, this is one of the kind of earliest recordings of these songs that I know about. I've spent many years working in Sierra Leone, working also with women's societies, recording their songs. So I thought this was a good start to introduce this archive. Record number 720. 
That was a recording from North Thomas's archive from 1915 in Sierra Leone. Paul, tell me a little bit more about that track. Thomas recorded something like 800 field recordings. Um, have you have you listened to them all? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I actually have. I, I This archive is huge. I've got thousands of photographs, hundreds of sound recordings, thousands of objects. So it's a very ambitious project, actually, but remarkable. And, of course, it's the whole sonic experience of these archives. Of course, the signal's very poor, the noise is very loud, but you get this ident at the beginning, which is in Northcott Thomas's own voice, and he gives, you know, the date and place where it was recorded sometimes. But you could imagine taking these back to communities where they're recorded. It's very difficult for people to really engage with these. And yet this is their ancestors' voices, you know, which is remarkable. It's a kind of sonic repatriation, I like to think of it. So you have to imagine us taking these recordings on our laptop with speakers and so on into, and particularly in Sierra Leone, really quite rural areas and reintroducing them to communities and saying, you know, these are your ancestors' voices. This was recorded here 110 years ago or something like that. What are the reactions like? It's amazing. And actually, we, so we're taking photographs and these sound recordings with us and, you know, leaving them with the communities. And the photographs are powerful, you know, particularly when someone can recognize their ancestor's face, you know, because Thomas also noted people's names down. But emotionally, the connection with the sound is really quite amazing. And it's such a privilege, actually, to be able to kind of witness this. But they're also very difficult. And I mean, you have to remember in these areas, there's no electricity. What they do have is, is mobile phones. So actually, the way in which these then get distributed or redistributed locally is that as we play them, people record them off our laptop and our speakers and so on onto their mobile phones and then they get recirculated which is interesting what we're trying to do because actually the 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 value of these recordings you know what the content of of them is is really kind of locked away they're very inaccessible so these recordings are held by the british library for instance and who have put a lot of resources into digitizing them but in terms of actually opening them up linguistically or ethnomusicologically you know we don't have that expertise so to go to the places where they were actually recorded is really important but then the barrier is is how do you how do you actually get people to listen intently to them to see because it's the first reaction is all you know is is quite blank but then gradually you listen carefully more and more carefully and suddenly it'll click and actually my second track tries to record a little bit of that process so what we often do is you know when we come to a a village say a crowd of people will gather around us you know this is an exciting thing people turning up in their village for no other reason that uh, than that we're following this archive these these recordings happen to be recording there so that means that's the village we'll go to and the excitement then is is a lot but then of course it's also very noisy but eventually we'll find a way of sitting down quietly and listening to these tracks and then what happens is gradually people will start hearing the words and it'll come through and even joining in there so the next track actually is in a place called Bumban also in uh, in Sierra Leone a limba speaking area and what you'll hear here is me playing in the field imagine being under a big cotton tree in a in a village in West Africa playing this track and then gradually people joining in let's give it a listen (laughs) 
The song is about Demo. That we came to visit. Yeli came to visit Demo. Listen, Demo, I've come to visit you. Demo, I've come to visit you. Please listen to me. Repeatedly. Repeatedly. I think that one was uh, self-explanatory. What was that process like? I mean, again, I just get the word privilege comes to my mind. I mean, it's so exciting. It's like using these archives to take you on a journey. I mean, literally, you know, we're following where the archive takes us. But then there's another journey, which is a kind of across time and across cultures. And just listening to that brings back the scene in Bumban earlier this year. That was in 2019. And the connection that it makes, you can hear the laughter and the smiling and the joy in being reunited with this, this, this recording. And again, I think what's interesting is that paradox. These were recorded in the context of a colonial project, which is all about you know, all of those bad things about colonialism and how different disciplines were used in that project. And yet, if you go beyond that critique, there's such power in this archive in all of this, and this is just one archive, of course, in thousands and thousands in our institutions, but they have this real power of being able to bridge time, bridge space, and bridge kind of cultures, and bridge between the kind of, you know, the heritage of the colonizer and the heritage of the colonized. What is the dynamic like, or what, what do people respond after, I guess, the initial laughter? Have you, has anybody shared with you insights that they've gained? I mean, there's maybe a light bulb moment there we hear uh, when they join in and singing. But afterwards, what's the discussion or dialogue like? It's very interesting. And this is also where past meets present, because a lot of the time we don't, we simply don't know the significance of the recordings or the photographs. We see a face, we've got a name maybe, or we've got this track. But actually then once it's understood what it's saying, it opens up a whole realm of possibilities or different avenues to understand things. It it could, for instance, be a real insight into the politics of that moment, you know, 110 years ago. And it's a crucial moment, one of huge transformation. This is really the height of colonial expansionist kind of uh, expansionism in, in, in West Africa at this time. 
So the commentary actually on colonialism, on the coming of the white man, is actually very interesting. And again, it challenges some of the kind of received wisdoms because, I mean, there's a whole lecture series in here. But for instance, it's often seen as, right, evil white colonist comes to town, transforms it through violence and so on. But hidden in these recordings are other stories, actually, where it's a more ambiguous situation. There were, it wasn't as if colonization happened in a vacuum. There were other tensions and conflicts and things going on. And sometimes, actually, communities aligned themselves with the colonist, the whites, the British in this case, and that meant they were suddenly free to do things. For instance, in northern Edo areas of, of Nigeria, we've taken back some of these recordings and so on, and they speak of the freedom that the coming of white man allows because suddenly they're able to wander around outside of the village at dark to their farms and so on. Whereas previously, because of the dangers of doing that from neighboring groups who were actually within the context of domestic slavery in this case, kidnapping people, capturing people, it wasn't safe to actually get at, go outside the village at nighttime. So you get a whole other more complicated story emerging. Lots of politics too, pictures of a chiefly lineage that has subsequently been sidelined. We were in Sierra Leone, for instance, when there were a number of chieftaincy elections going on. And actually then to have the picture of your ancestor who was a chief at the time that Thomas visited suddenly plays into a contemporary politics. So there's a lot, a lot in there to unpack. It's not just a straightforward celebratory narrative. It's a complex and ambiguous one, too. Did you affect local politics at all with bringing back those photos? Or how do you tread carefully, I guess, with those dynamics at play? Yeah, precisely treading carefully. What does that look like? <laughs> we can't always tell until we do that because it's literally unlocking something. We have no idea what's inside there. And a lot of the time it's quite benign. But then there are moments where suddenly we understand that there's something political and problematic perhaps in there. And then, yes, that's a kind of it's about being sensitive to that, picking up on it as anthropologists and, you know, other people that do kind of field work. We're intervening in life all the time. We're, we're, we're naive to think otherwise. So part of our whole ethics of research is about making sure that our interests as researchers, because, of course, those incidents are actually, from a researcher's point of view, fascinating. But, you know, our code of ethics is that the interests, of course, of our the people we're working with should come before our own. So, yes, I mean, on the one hand, one also wants to champion maybe that sidelined lineage that's been kind of pushed out of the local political scene and say, well, actually, no, <laughs> you have that heritage. That's a legitimate claim. On the other hand, is that our position to do? So it's, I can't say that there's a rule to apply. It's just about being sensitive, our sensibilities of taking care really come to the fore. What are we going to hear next? So <clears throat> taking a kind of journey onwards, that, that, the last track was literally turning up in a village and playing these tracks. Another approach which really shows the kind of collaborative nature of research, and particularly this re-entanglements project, is to work with local experts, uh, academics, researchers, artists, musicians, and so on. So we've set up a series of collaborations with, for instance, universities and so on. And particularly thinking of the sound material, we've worked with some colleagues in music departments. 
including at the University of Nigeria in Suka. So what we're going to hear now, and I've cheated here because we're going to segue between one of Thomas's archival recordings and a new recording. So we've, we've worked with a guy called Samson Uchena Eze, who's in the music department at Nsuka. And what he's done, and again, this is painstaking work. It takes a lot of effort to listen carefully to these archival tracks. But he's managed to transcribe them musically as well as lyrically. And then he's worked with a group of people from the town, this is Orca in uh, what's now Anambra State in Nigeria, to re-record the track. So what we're going to hear is, to begin with, a little bit of Thomas's original recording, and this is a mother's lament. It's sung from the perspective of a mother, kind of admonishing her daughter. And we don't know why. <laughs> we don't know what the daughter has done wrong but she's kind of reprimanding her some, to some degree. And so we're going to start with the archival recording and then listen to Samson's re-recording of this track. Let's give it a spin. Yo, 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 yo,
and the re-recording as mentioned what was that process like what was the the turnaround i guess in yeah. terms of time actually it takes a lot of time samson actually worked on an, a number of tracks about six of them but that was a lot of work for him i mean he's transcribed them music in notation as well so i think really valuable but it just shows it's not as easy as all that it's not just a question of oh listening to it and then that's it they actually rehearsed that with the performers one of the interesting things they're comparing the archive recording which is from 1910 to the new recording of course is that uh, you get the percussion and you get some sense of the soundscape of it and that of course is about the technologies used so Thomas is recording on a, a wax cylinder phonograph recorder with a horn and you really had to bellow into the horn to get that recorded so any kind of more peripheral sound like the kind of percussion or, or a chorus would have been lost. So you get a very odd version of the recordings. So it's quite nice then to hear a fuller sound with other kind of dynamics. And what's the, the I guess, afterlife of the new recording? In what context was it passed on? Did Samson work on that as his own research? or? Yeah, in fact, he's really keen to do more. I mean, many Nigerian scholars, he's a lecturer in the music department at the University of Nigeria. They don't have PhDs, a lot of them. You become a lecturer and then hopefully get a PhD somewhere down the line. He would love to do a PhD about these recordings, and I'd love to find the funding to help him do it. It would be wonderful if he could come and do that here at SOAS. It would be the perfect place, but international student, heavy fees, not easy. But it would be wonderful to get someone like him who has that local knowledge and the expertise he has as a musicologist to work with these in a, in a seriously scholarly way. What other researchers did you get involved in the project in it being very interdisciplinary? Yeah, very interdisciplinary and very collaborative. I mean, we've picked universities or cultural centers, groups in the areas in which Thomas worked. So he worked in Igbo-speaking areas and Edo-speaking areas of Nigeria, for instance. So we focused in those areas. We've been doing a whole other kind of side of the project, working with artists, both within art schools, which are within universities, so they're, they're, they're also university links, but also with those linked around a particular studio or kind of workshop type of thing, and both traditional artists and contemporary artists. So we've um, actually had a number of exhibitions in West Africa, one in Benin City earlier this year, one in Lagos at the National Museum. We've got one in Freetown at the National Museum coming up, one at the University of Nigeria again, which displays some of this material, which includes sculpture, it includes two-dimensional work, photography and sound work and three-dimensional objects. And a lot of this material is actually going to be coming to SOAS. We've got an exhibition at the Brunei Gallery here at SOAS in October to December 2020, and we're going to be showing this historical material, but we're also going to bring together the work from our collaborators and so on. So 
There's lots of exciting things. I mean, for me, in the arts, humanities, stroke, social sciences, this is such exciting work to be doing, to work collaboratively, to really try and activate an archive as a way of activating those kind of partnerships. And I guess dealing with archives, you're creating your own of sorts with this project. We've spoken about the past, we're speaking about the present, now we're delving into the future. How do you see uh, people engaging with a project in the future? Would uh, your most hopeful outcome you could see coming yeah, out of this? Yeah, it's a good, good question. Well, I mean, for, for a start, we're doing this very much a project that's happening in public. So actually, there's a website, re-entanglements.net, where literally as we're going along, we're just putting our findings and our experiences up there. So it's not that we're kind of doing all the work and then one day it will appear as an exhibition or a publication. It's happening kind of live and we've got Facebook groups and all the rest of it. I think there's two things. One is about this particular archive and it's about opening it up so that people actually locally, scholars, communities, differently situated people can know that it's there, can reach into it. The institutions that hold these things don't hide these things intentionally, but of course you've got to have the right kind of knowledge, experience, confidence, social kind of background to be able to have the courage to actually go to an institution and say, I want to listen to this, it's hidden away in your archive. So that outreach, as it were, is really important. And I'd hope that then people become aware of it and go, I want to look at this, I want to do something with it. But there's a much broader point, too, because, as I say, this is one archive and it's a really rich one. But there are others. There are thousands of similar kinds of things hidden away in our museum stores, in our archives and so on. The overarching name of this project, Museum Affordances, is really asking a basic question. It's not asking what these things are. It's asking what they make possible make possible in the present for the future, if you like, this notion of affordances. What do these archives and collections afford and for whom? It's not just for academics and researchers or museum curators, but for communities and different communities who have a differently placed relationship, if you like, to, to the material itself. So I think there's a, the bigger question is, is a challenge to our institutions to be experimental, be creative with a way in which they can open up the riches, the problematic riches, if you like, that are waiting to be discovered and activated in their institutions. What are we going to hear next? So one of the real, really exciting things for me, I think, is where that process of collaboration with communities is kind of reinforced because it's not just us going to a community, but suddenly we've begun a dialogue and the community suddenly comes to us. And what this next track represents is an instance of that, a place called Nyeni, also in Anambra State in Nigeria. Cultural heritage is a difficult thing in West Africa, and particularly in, Ni in southern Nigeria. The past isn't celebrated unequivocally. In fact, it's often demonized. There's large uh, Christianization in recent years has been very strong and, and anything almost associated with the past has been demonized. So people have been destroying their own cultural heritage, which, of course, places even more importance on these old collections, archival collections that are kind of outside these countries, despite their colonial context often of collection because they often then become some of the few things that actually document that cultural heritage. But in some places, and Nenny's an example of this, there's the, a community within this place, Nenny, 
who were ritual specialists, stroke kind of doctors, stroke surgeons. And they traveled around Igbo speaking areas. And one of their roles was to make scarifications. And in this area of Nigeria, it's called itchy scarifications. And these were a symbol as signifying an elite status. Okay, you had to have achieved, you had to be from a powerful, influential and rich family to have your children or your young men in particular have this itchy scarification made on them. And there was a whole kind of culture behind this. Now, this practice, it's really full on. It's like a very, almost the forehead and side of the face is scarified with these kind of parallel lines and patterns. It's a serious endeavor. And Thomas's archives from this particular era of Nigeria are full of examples, photographs of people with this itchy scarification. We've only found one elderly man that actually has the itchy scarification. And what we're going to do is hear him sing here. This is Chief Ododika Chiduli. And he was actually, this community in Yeni have this kind of intangible cultural heritage of scarification and this ceremony. And they've turned it into a festival now. And this man, Chief Ododika, is very much a local celebrity because he has the last of the itchy, the real itchy scarification. And he is singing here a song that would have been performed during this itchy scarification process. It's a kind of call response song, as you'll hear. <laughs> Who recorded this? So this was recorded in Nyeni by my research assistant on this project, postdoctoral research assistant George Abbo, who's also a lecturer at uh, University of Nigeria in Suka, but he's based uh, with us on this project in the UK. And why is he the last one to be scarred? How does he feel about that? I guess he's a local celebrity, but... He's a kind of a, a carrier of that knowledge and a unique carrier of that knowledge, really. There's, he, he's the only one left. Actually, the community have asked us to make a film, doing some more interviewing with him, but also they, they reenact the scarification, but without actually doing it, they kind of mime it. So we're going to actually... Annually or...? Annually, an annual f festival, yes, in December. So we're actually going to be filming that and filming a bit more about the history of this. So this is what I mean by outreach that's now coming from the community to us as researchers to help them document their heritage. And for me, that's so 
satisfying, that it's not this extractive academic project where a UK-based academic goes over to Africa, kind of does something that's meaningful for them and their career, etc., etc. But there's this dialogue that's created through that process, but that it's very much a two-way exchange. This sounds like a deviation from the archive. What are some of the other interesting detours or turns you've taken? Yeah, I mean, it's not really a deviation. Thomas, again, was one of the first people to photograph people with itchy scarification and record this. And he documents this is why this connections worked, because here's this buried away thing that suddenly we've brought to this community and they go, wow, but this is, yeah, yeah, we have a festival that celebrates this. This is amazing. That's so that, that kind of excitement. There's so many issues. I mean, partly it's because Northcote Thomas, as an anthropologist, and at that time he was really... I mean, he's been criticised for this as well, but, you know, kind of, I think, in a rather anachronistic way, because he was, he was doing a very general thing. He wasn't being discriminating of what he was documenting. He was trying to document the whole of culture and society. So there's all kinds of things. There's an example, for instance, a photograph example, where there's a photograph of a woman wearing a particular kind of hat. Now, they're black and white photographs, but we know from the style of the hat and it has an eagle feather that it's a red cap. This is a place called Nemo. And this is a controversial thing because men only are allowed to wear red caps of a certain status. And actually today in that place, there's a whole politics going on because there is there's a particular role, omu, for this woman. And she becomes an honorary male of equal status to these Ozu title holders, these men. And she has been contesting her right to wear the red cap. And the men have been challenging that. So again, when we've turned up with these photographs, suddenly there's evidence. No, there's a tradition here. A hundred years ago, the Omu wore the red cap. And so that's justified her kind of role. So again, it's not something that we set out to engage with. It's not really a deviation, but it's an unexpected outcome of just finding what matters in this archive to people locally, which isn't necessarily what we think will be the most important thing. Is there any occasion where you've met in the middle or is that something that happens along the way? It's all meeting in the middle. Those issues that are led by the community are absolutely great from our point of view too. I mean, it's not about trying to set an agenda beyond saying it's such a genuine question we have to ask and a very basic one. What do these archives mean to you? And what can they do for you? And the simple fact is, we have no idea. <laughs> you know, we've no idea. Museums have no idea. Archives have no idea. We're privileged to be able to do this because to do this kind of research is expensive. I've got a three-year AHRC-funded project. How privileged can you get to be able to devote three years with a team to actually asking some really basic questions? But that's it. It's expensive to do. And that's why we have to try and make the work we're doing visible out there so that people can perhaps then, you know, in museums or archives say, well, these are some ideas. Perhaps we can try and do something similar with other collections. What are we going to hear next? So the last two tracks actually are, so through doing archival research, we've been able to reconstruct the itineraries that this anthropologist Northcote Thomas took. It wasn't as if he'd got a nice diary where he'd written down, oh, on this date, I was at this place, then I went to this place. It's about painstaking archival research, being able to actually reconstruct the journeys. But then, of course, having been able to do that, we can then retrace those journeys. And as I say, we then, then can take these audio tracks and take the uh, photographs and so on back to the community. 
What we also do along the way, it's difficult working with these audio tracks. Sometimes people will, will, will recognize a song, very, very occasionally actually. Once or twice we've had it where someone goes, oh, but we know this song or we know this poem and can then recite it just like that. Mostly it's a kind of a harder process where people could perhaps start singing along, but they would have to relearn it, as in the case with Sanson's project. But what we do along the way also is try and record traditional music that people are playing. So these are two examples. And this one is a most beautiful song. This is sung by a guy called Tamba Karoma from a tiny place called Kolifaka in northern Sierra Leone. And this is a Karanko hunter's song. Thomas recorded this instrument, Konden, as a kind of stringed instrument. And so when we got to this area which Thomas recorded his track in 1914, we were asking around, is there anyone that can play this instrument still? We were told about Tambay. He said, oh, he's very famous. He plays, plays this and he sings songs. We managed to track him down. It was quite sad, really. He said, oh, I haven't sung for years. And he brought out this instrument, this Konden, and it was broken and it was just in pieces. It couldn't be played. So we said, oh, right, OK, well, we were really hoping that you might be interested in playing for us. So he says, come back in two days. So we went back in two days and it was amazing from being a little, well, I mean, these things are made of sticks, an old pan, some strings. I'm not sure if there were some animal uh, gut kind of strings and so on. He'd recreated, he'd reconstructed this instrument in two days and it sounded beautiful. And my gosh, this song I, I find really beautiful. It's a song he told us, it tells of the prowess of the Karanko hunter because the hunter can provide for his family through his skills as a hunter. He, he can always put food on the table. Let's give it a listen. <laughs>
Sounds like he still has his chops. What was it like uh, recording that? I don't know. That's such a beautiful song. It almost had me in tears. I mean, I'm no ethnomusicologist and I don't go to the field with a very sophisticated kind of thing. And you can hear in the background, you know, it was recorded in the back of a school. You can just about hear some of the kids playing in the background and so on. These are very impromptu recordings. They're not, I, I wouldn't call them professional field recordings, but there's something really genuine about them, I think. Just, just that connection, the connection that talking to people about their pasts, their culture, the things that matter to them. And you really get a sense that he's not this particular tambo. He's, he's no superstar. He's not doing this stuff. And I suppose that notion that someone should come from the UK to a little village, little farming community, and come and ask him to play. I think he felt privileged. We gave him some money, of course, for his time and towards the cost of repairing his instrument. But no, just wonderful. I don't know whether he's, he's picked that up again now and he's playing more regularly. Have to pay him a visit again, I guess, uh, to, uh, to find out. Absolutely. Do you have any, I guess, before we play the final track, any reflections on the project, any words of encouragement to students looking to engage in uh, research or in interdisciplinary research? It's a very ambitious project. I've been really fully occupied on this. It's a lot of work. <laughs> um, how, how do you manage that work in terms of you have thousands of photos that are hundreds, thousands of recordings? Where do you start, I guess, is a question a lot of people might ask. Yeah, and it's a really difficult one. One I find personally difficult because I see the potential of the whole. And I know that even what I can do in three years is just the tip of the iceberg on this. But that's great because there's lots of possibilities, hopefully, that the project will open up for further research from other people and so on. And, you know, we've been reaching out to students in West Africa, in the UK. I'm really keen for colleagues and students at SOAS also to get involved. I mentioned we have an exhibition happening in 2020. Really keen that that shouldn't just be a, a silent space of things on the wall, but a place of engagement and conversation and debate 
getting to that colonial politics. But I suppose that encouragement, well, one, it's about media. As I say, my background is actually in film and I came to the academic world late. But too many academics are content with writing articles in journals that another 10 people will read or a book that costs £150. What kind of access is that? But through blogging, through websites, through using sound, through using image, there's so much more that's possible. And this, this is exciting stuff. So that would be one thing. And then the other thing is this notion of archives as dusty spaces that are all about the past. I hope that this project shows that, no, actually, it's all about the present. It's all about the future. It's all about how pasts come to be re-articulated in the present for different kinds of projects and trying to open up those projects, the possibilities of those, particularly in a decolonizing world, we hope. So I suppose that's it, yes, to think of the value of activating those old things for the future. Going beyond the buzzword, perhaps? <laughs> yeah, sorry if I've got a few of those myself. <laughs> Not at all. Thank you very much for your time. And where can we engage with the project in cyberspace and besides the exhibition in 2020? please visit the website, just it's re-entanglements.net. And that's probably the best first stop because from that you can find out the Facebook page and so on. But please get in contact with me. I'm easy to find. Get in contact with me if you're interested in getting involved, if you're touched by the archive, by the regions in which Thomas was working a hundred and more years ago please get in contact because there's something for you in this project. You can find a little mini project of your own because it's so huge, it's so vast. Excellent. Thank you very much. So uh, to play us out, what are we going to hear? So the last track is another of these field recordings that we made in Bumbanaga. This is a, a, a Limba-speaking area of Sierra Leone. And this is Mabinti Conte who's leading this song. And why I wanted us to leave on this one is because it, in a way it takes us full circle. This is a women's society song. And we started with one recorded not so far away from where this one was recorded in space, but 104 years in time distance. And this is a song that's sung to welcome people, actually, to their village. I thought that that was a nice kind of thing to end on. And you're welcoming them because of the good they can bring. So there was hope. When we come to a place, it's in the hope that we'll bring something good. And sometimes that's in a monetary way, or sometimes it's in development, whatever that means. But it was nice to think that bringing these archives back to this particular place was also seen as something good. And so this is Marbinti Conte. <laughs> Hey, I want to be a man. Hey, I want to be a man. I want to be a man. I want to be a man.